Why would we bother to go back to a book that was written 2,600 years ago? The Bible itself will turn you atheists faster than anything. When you take the scriptures disclosed over centuries, 40 different writers, 66 books, and you see the prophetic schema, immediately you see the supernatural. This is madness. This is madness. Who can believe this? I believe in God on the basis of rational evidence. Faith and reason are not contrary to each other. Science doesn't know everything. That is still no grounds for saying, oh well, magic did it. Come on out. <laughs> Would you appreciate Chad for coming and join us? I want to start uh, this morning by telling a story about a young woman named Agnes. Agnes, um, as a young woman, 18 years old, um, living in Europe, made a, a shocking decision with her life. See, Agnes grew up in the home of a relatively affluent and, uh, and powerful local politician. Grew up in a loving home, loving mom and sister, her father died, unfortunately, when she was young, when she was eight years old. She decided at the age of 18 years old that she wanted to leave it all. She was going to leave her life of comfort. She was going to leave her life of affluence. Going to leave it all completely behind. Would never actually see her mother or her sister again in her life at the age of 18. And she moved to India. Matter of fact, she, she moved to one of the most impoverished cities on the planet. She moved to Calcutta and dedicated the rest of her life to serving and living in the midst of the poorest of the poorest of the poor, the outcasts, the people that no one else wanted anything to do with. She dedicated her life to them. Of course, you know her as Mother Teresa. And the world would look at, it, at that, and maybe a lot of us would look at that story and say, well, how bizarre, how unusual. What, what would possess a young woman living in comfort, living in affluence? What, what would possess her to make that decision with her life? Well, Mother Teresa actually answers that question in her own words. She says, each of the poor is Jesus in disguise. Let us touch the dying, the poor, the lonely, and the unwanted according to the graces that we have received, and let us not be ashamed or slow to do the humble work. Mother Teresa lived the way that she lived because she believed the way that she believed. Did you catch that? She lived the way she lived because she believed the way that she believed. Each one of us in this room today lives the way that we live because of the way that we believe. Beliefs have consequences. Beliefs have consequences. The way that we think affects the way that we act. Always, every time. You can't separate the two. Beliefs have consequences. I just want to give you two quick examples of this. Beliefs have consequences. First example, 
It's become really fashionable among a lot of people today, especially in, in, in our culture, in American culture today. It's become very fashionable for certain people to say, you know, I really like Jesus. I like the things that he did. You know, he, he reached out to, to the down and out. He helped the poor. He helped the sick. I mean, I really like what Jesus did. But I don't really care for what Jesus thought. Specifically, what he thought about God what he thought about salvation, what he thought about maybe even his own identity. So I like what Jesus did. I don't particularly care for what Jesus thought. But you realize you can't separate the two. Jesus did what he did because he thought what he thought. Beliefs have consequences. I'll give you another example. I talk to a lot of young people, um, a lot of high schoolers, a lot of college students. And one of the things that I've noticed is, and this is by no means new, um, but I've noticed we treat people, we treat each other horribly. Horribly, so often of the time. And, and I, tr I tried to think through, why, why do we treat people so badly? Why are we so quick to dismiss people, to abuse people, to neglect people? Why do we treat people so badly? Why do our young people feel empowered and emboldened to say and just the most awful things about one another and to treat each other so horribly? What is the roots of this? And I'm not sure that I've completely identified the roots, but I think that I've gotten at at least a part of it. See, because when you tell an entire generation of young people when you drill it into their mind incessantly, when you tell them that they are nothing more than accidental byproducts of chance, that they are nothing more than cosmic accidents of the universe, when you tell them that and insist that they believe it, eventually they will start to act on it. The thing is, no one really values an accident. No one really values something that doesn't ultimately have a purpose. And so we empower a whole generation of young people to go out and to treat one another as if they have no purpose, as if they have no meaning, as if they're nothing more than cosmic accidents. And we wonder, why do we treat people so awfully? Maybe, just maybe, it's because beliefs have consequences. Every person has a worldview. A worldview. You might have heard that word before from time to time. But a worldview basically functions like a set of contact lenses. I don't know how many of you are wearing contact lenses this morning. I'm wearing contacts uh, this morning. Now, typically what I do, I'll, I'll put them in my eye in the morning, or in my eyes in the morning, and uh, uh, I won't really think about them for the rest of the day. I, I won't necessarily be aware of them unless, uh, you know, a piece of dust gets caught behind the contacts and it feels like somebody's sticking an ice pick in your eye. Some of you have been there. Uh, or towards the end of the day, you know, your eyes start to get dry, then you're aware, like, oh yeah, there's something in my eye. But most of the day, I'm not even aware of it, even though my contacts are affecting the way that I see the world literally every single moment. They're affecting the way that I see you, they're affecting the way I, when I'm driving down the road, they're affecting everything, every waking moment. And that's kind of how a worldview functions. A worldview is a set of beliefs, a set of assumptions about the, about the things that matter most in life. Why am I here? 
What is my purpose? What is my value? Is there a God? Does God want anything from my life? You know, the big scary questions of life, the big weighty questions of life. Every single person has a set of beliefs related to those big questions. We call that the world, a worldview. Now, a lot of times we're not even aware of the assumptions and the beliefs that we have. We're just kind of living our life, going about our business. We're not even aware of how those worldview beliefs are affecting us on a day-to-day basis, how they're affecting the way that we talk to other people, how they're affecting the way that we go to our work and maybe what type of work we're doing. Like, we're not even aware of how that worldview is affecting us, but it is. Beliefs have consequences. Now, think, think about some of the things that we do on a Sunday morning in a place like this. Uh, we, just, we just had communion. Now, think, have you ever thought about how weird that is? Some of you are like, yeah, I know, I know exactly how weird that is, because maybe you just started coming to church or, or whatever. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Now, I've been going to church my entire life, um, and so it's, it's no longer that unusual to me, but think about what we do. We, tr- we pass around a tray with little chiclet pieces of bread, uh, little at my church, shot glasses of grape juice, you know. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, let's just admit it. That's something strange that we do. But when we see something like communion through the lens of the gospel worldview, it's no longer just a chiclet of bread or a shot glass of juice, is it? No, it's, it's full of so much greater meaning and significance than that. It's the body, it's the blood of Christ. We see it in a different way. Because of our beliefs. Beliefs have consequences. And we need to think about that. Because we so infrequently pause and intentionally think about what we believe and the consequences of those beliefs. And so my message today is actually a very, very simple message. I can summarize it with one word. The word is think. (laughs) That's my message. Think. The Christian life is not just about doing or not doing. But how many messages have we heard that are exactly along those lines? That to be a Christian is to do this or to not do that. But the Christian life is more than that. The Christian life is a way of thinking. To be a follower of Jesus, listen, to be a follower of Jesus is to engage your mind. It's to engage your mind, because those beliefs have profound consequences in your life. Let me just give you some examples from Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that Jesus came into the world full of, do you know the text? Two things, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. John chapter 8, a few chapters later, we're told that in him, in Jesus, we will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set us free. 1 John 3, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us love in truth. Interesting. Colossians 2, verse 3, talking about Jesus, Paul says, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. 1 Timothy 2.4 God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We don't check our brains at the door of the church. The Christian life, and I feel like I preach this every day because we're so resistant to hearing it sometimes, but the Christian life is an invitation to engage our minds, to think. But it isn't simply an invitation to think. We We shouldn't leave off there. It's not just an invitation to think. It's an invitation to what I, what I call think Christianly. The Christian life is an invitation to think Christianly. Um, I want to read a passage to you. I don't know, it might, it might be up on the screen as well. But this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. Um, and here's what the Apostle Paul says here. Uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want to reread verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare is also about thoughts and ideas because beliefs have consequences. Paul is calling us to the serious engagement of our minds in this text. I love this text. There's so much going on here. Paul is calling us to engage in knowing and defending the truth of who Jesus is. In a world that is full of competing truths, where one person's truth, I mean, you saw it even in the the bumper for this sermon, where one one person's truth is regarded as just as valid, as just as true as as another person's truth, in in that type of world, with the deafening noise of all these competing worldviews all around us, our minds are being shaped every day by all these competing truth claims. Our minds every day are being shaped by these competing truth claims. Let me just give you a quick illustration of this, a quick quick example of this. It's going to seem like a very small thing, okay? It's going to seem like a really uh, insignificant thing, but that's what preachers do sometimes. They make small things into significant things. Um, Okay, so uh, think about the last time that you went to a shopping mall. Um, You go into Old Navy or a store like that, and one of the things that you see when you walk into a store like Old Navy, I know our Old Navy at, at our mall, um, my daughter loves going into this store because as soon as you walk into the store, there's this whole display of mannequins. And it used to be um, the mannequins at Old Navy were very lifelike. They had faces and hair and the whole thing. Now, a while ago, though, we walked into our Old Navy and my, my daughter was distraught because they had decapitated all of the mannequins. They had taken all of the mannequins' uh, heads off. Now, do you know why stores do that? They do that for a very practical reason. 
They don't want you to imagine other people wearing the clothing. They want you to imagine what? Yourself wearing the clothing. Now, a mannequin at a store serves a very specific function. The function is this. If you just buy this set of clothing, if you just buy this set of clothing, your life will be incrementally happier. Your life will be incrementally better. And so, you dutifully do your job, you buy the set of clothing, and maybe for a time period your life is incrementally better, but then what happens the next week when you go into the same store? Madigan done changed your clothes, right? So there's a new definition of what that good life looks like. And every single week, there's this constantly shifting definition. Okay, now that's the good life. Now that's the good life. And we, we run ragged trying to keep up with what the world defines as the good life. You say, well, that's just a mannequin, whatever. Yeah, it is just a mannequin. But that's an illustration of what goes on in our culture and our world all the time. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you listen to the radio, every time you go to the mall, every time you go to your school, your work, every place that you go, our culture is whispering in our ears, this is what the good life looks like. This is what your life needs to look like if you want to be happy, if you want to be successful. If you want to have meaning and purpose, this is what you have to pursue. This is what you have to be. This is what you have to look like. And it's dizzying, isn't it? It's exhausting because it's a constantly shifting target. Why do we need to take every thought captive? We need to pay attention to what Jesus identifies as the good life. Take every thought captive with intentionality and bring it into submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate truth. Followers of Jesus must be diligent and intentional about submitting every thought, every idea, every truth to the Lordship of Jesus. Now quickly, there are two important benefits to thinking Christianly, okay? Two important benefits that I want to highlight real quick. The first benefit is this. Thinking Christianly will help us to better understand and navigate our world. Learning to think Christianly, to take every thought captive, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, will help us to understand and navigate our world. I want to uh, highlight another passage from the Apostle Paul. This, this passage is from Ephesians, and it's one of my very favorite passages. It's become one of my favorite passages. Um, Ephesians 1, verses uh, 16 through 18. Here's what it says. This is the beginning part of Ephesians where Paul is basically, he's, he's uh, cracking the door open to his prayer life. He's, he's letting these Christians know, here's what I'm praying for, okay? And he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for, uh, for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
Now, Paul prays for three specific things for these Ephesians. Three things. He prays, first of all, for wisdom, that they would have a spirit of wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is a skillfully lived life. I have a 12-year-old son, um, and, uh, and he's awesome. Uh, he's a knucklehead, too, like all 12-year-old boys. And uh, I volunteer at my church on Wednesday nights, and I work with the, the, the sixth-grade boys. That's my group that I work with. And every single week, I kid you not, they get so sick of it. They roll their eyes. But every single week, we begin our talk by talking about the difference between ignorance and foolishness. It, it drives them crazy, but this is the professor in me, right? I feel like they need to know it. And so I ask them, what is ignorance? And here's, here's what they've learned ignorance is. Ignorance is, what you do what's wrong, is when you do what's wrong, but you don't know any better. That's ignorance. I say, good, very good. What's foolishness? Foolishness is when you do what's wrong, but you know better. Or you ought to know better, right? That's being a fool. And I tell them, boys, don't be a fool. It's okay to be ignorant, but don't be a fool. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. Wisdom is a skillfully lived life. It's a skillfully lived life. And, and we live in a world, I mean, I'm a, I'm a college professor, okay? So this is, this is one of my daily struggles. We live in a world where people don't value information. They don't. It's basic economics. Things that are cheap and are readily available, you undervalue. You undervalue. That's the reason why we feel emboldened to throw away as much food as we throw away, because it's cheap and it's readily available. So we undervalue it. The same is true about information. Every single 12-year-old, not every single 12-year-old, but most of the 12-year-olds in my church that I work with have literally the world's information in their back pocket. Now, they don't know about that. Other, they don't know anything other than Snapchat, unfortunately. Uh, so they, they don't know the, the, the true resources that are at their disposal, but, but they have access to that information, and they also undervalue it as a result because it's so readily available. But what is rare in our world, and it continues to be rare in our world, is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is precious. Wisdom is, and when you see wisdom, when you recognize wisdom, you know that that's the case. Pursue wisdom. Don't just pursue information. Pursue wisdom, the skillfully lived life shaped by Christ. Because that is a valuable, precious commodity. I tell that to my students every day as often as I possibly can. You want to set yourself head and shoulders above your peers? <laughs> pursue wisdom. Because it's precious. Don't just pursue information. So he prays, I want you to be full of the spirit of wisdom. He also says, I want you to be full of the spirit of, now the translation that I used was revelation, the word revelation there, but don't be freaked out by that word revelation. The word revelation literally means a disclosure, to disclose something, to uncover something, to look beneath the surface of what's obvious. You with me? And so the word that I like to use there is discernment, discernment. It's like my mannequin illustration that I used. Discernment is actually not just looking at the mannequin, but asking the question, what's the hidden message here? What's really going on here? That's what discernment is. Discernment is the ability to not just take things as they are, 
but actually asks the more penetrating question. What's the message? What's the meaning? And Paul says, if you want to navigate this world successfully, you need to be full of both a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of discernment. And then thirdly, he talks about knowledge. Knowledge specifically of Jesus. Knowledge of Jesus. Now, hear me on that, though. That's not just head knowledge. That's not just knowing about Jesus. Uh, I'm married. I will have been married 16 years this summer. I know that my wife, her name is Tara. I know that. But knowing that is not the same thing as knowing her. You with me on that? Knowing that she is my wife is a far different thing than knowing her as my wife. And so when Paul prays for knowledge here, he's not praying that you would just know things about Jesus, as important as that is, and that is an important thing. He's also praying that you would have personal knowledge of Jesus. And so he says, I'm praying for you in this. Why does Paul feel the need to pray for these things? Because first of all, these things are not things that come to us naturally. We need help and assistance to develop and to grow in wisdom and discernment and knowledge. And Paul recognizes that. Each one of us, we need God's help in this. But the second reason why Paul prays that, especially to a church in Ephesus, which is a very godless city. When we talk about living in a post-Christian world, this was decidedly a pre-Christian world, okay? Living in a godless city like Ephesus, a, a city that was far away from Jesus, a city that was far away from the God of the Bible, Paul recognized if you're living in that city, you need to be full of wisdom, discernment, and knowledge. And guys, I'm going to tell you, the same is going to be true for us living in a post-Christian world. If we're going to be able to effectively navigate and also reach this world with the truth of Jesus, we've got to learn to think Christianly. We've got to engage our minds and grow in wisdom and discernment and knowledge. Second thing, thinking Christianly will help us to better integrate our lives. To better integrate our lives. Um, I, uh, I teach apologetics at Ozark, which is, again, basically the defense of your faith, not just what you believe, but why do you believe it. I have an assignment that I give every single semester in that class, um, which the students hate, but I kind of love, and so it's not a democracy. I don't really care if they hate it. Um, no, actually, they hate it at first, but they come to appreciate it after it's finished. Um, I require that they interview a non-believer, not debate a non-believer, but interview a non-believer. So it could be a person who is formerly a Christian and is no longer a Christian. It could be a person who practices another religion altogether. It could be a, a hardened atheist, just someone who's not a follower of Jesus. And the purpose for that is, in doing apologetics, it does you no good to answer questions if you're not also listening to the reasons why people don't believe. So you've got to be a listener first. Okay? You've got to listen. Every single semester, though, the students come back after competing, completing that assignment, and there's almost universal disappointment in what they've discovered. Because what they discover is the main reason why a lot of people believe, don't believe is, frankly, because they don't care to believe. They don't care to believe. 
they don't really want to think about it. They don't want to think about God. They don't want to think about faith. They just can't be brought to worry about things like belief. And that's led me to this conviction that the number one problem facing our culture is not atheism. It's not atheism. It's apathyism. We just, we're content to fill our lives up with endless distraction so that we don't have to think about things that ultimately matter. And many of us in the church are guilty of the same type of worldview. This is leading us to what I would call disintegrated lives. Disintegrated lives. Um, uh, David Kinneman, who's the president of Barna Research, which is a big research um, company that specifically helps to serve the church, um, uh, he gave a talk that I was at a couple years ago. He, he made this comment that I thought was really important. He said, the number one problem facing the millennial generation, and by millennial generation, that's pretty much anyone born after the year 1980. He said, the number one problem facing the millennial generation is this. They don't know where faith fits in their life. They are living disintegrated lives. It's almost like multiple personality. We have different identities, different agendas, maybe even a, different, a completely different belief structure um, in various different settings and various different scenarios in our life. We're just living very disintegrated, very fragmented lives. He says that's, that's a big problem facing this younger generation. But I, I think it's not just the younger generation. I think it's all of us. I think all of us are, are struggling with disintegration. Um, give you an illustration of this. Uh, so a few years ago, um, uh, my wife and I, we, we bought a new house. And one of the things you learn when you buy a new house is that you don't necessarily think about right away. you got to figure out where all your junk goes, right? Like, in your current house, everything has a place, even your junk. Like, it was, it was, the, it was the funniest thing to me. Like, we're walking through the kitchen, and we're having a, a, a serious adult conversation about where our junk drawer is going to be. Like, we've already identified that the stuff in it is junk, but nevertheless— we can't imagine having a kitchen that doesn't have a junk drawer. It's just absurd to me. Um, but one of the things that you have to do is you also have to figure out where your wall art goes, your family pictures and all that stuff. Like in, your, in the old house, they all had a place. New house? Eh, don't know. So for like the first few months, we're literally walking around the house like this with our, with our art. Like, well, maybe this family picture looks good here. And you hang it there and you look at it for a little while and you're like, eh, maybe let's, let's give it a shot. Um, and, the, and maybe it doesn't fit there. Let's take it down. Let's put it in another room. And we, we did, I, I, I'm not kidding. We still, we've been in this house four and a half years. We still have a closet in our house with a stack of pictures at the bottom of the closet just because we haven't been able to find a place to hang these pictures yet. Um, well, imagine, imagine that uh, through some uh, unusual circumstance, my family inherited Michelangelo's statue of David. You know the one 
I mean, it's, it's literally a priceless masterpiece. You can't even put a dollar amount on it. It's priceless. And my family's inherited it. Um, now, what, what do you think we would do then upon bringing Michelangelo's statue home? Would we try to find a place to put it in the house? Like, oh, maybe in the kitchen. I don't know. It's a little bit unseemly to put in the kitchen. Definitely not G-rated. Definitely not going in the girls' room, okay? Um, Google it later. Um, living room, oh, maybe. I don't know. It's kind of a, it's big. It's just in the way. I, where, do we, where do we put this thing? What would we do if we inherited the statue of David? You know what we would probably do? We'd probably build an entirely new house around the statue, wouldn't we? We would have to. Now, a lot of us, we have trouble knowing where Jesus fits in our lives because we're just like us walking around like trying to, well, maybe he, maybe he goes here. Or, eh, it doesn't look so good. Or maybe he goes here. Like, I get the fact that Jesus works okay at church, and Jesus might work okay at home. Doesn't seem to work at, at work. Doesn't maybe seem to work as well at school. And we're just trying to figure out where does Jesus fit, right? Where does Jesus fit? But the thing is, when we're taking every thought captive and submitting it to the Lordship of Christ, you know what that means? That means that we tear our entire lives down and we rebuild them centered on the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus gives shape and structure to everything else. We don't just fit him in. A lot of people get frustrated at God. They get frustrated at religion. Like, oh, I went to church today. It didn't really do anything for me. And I get that. I understand that. But one of the big reasons why that is is because you're just trying to find a place to fit him. Jesus Jesus doesn't just fit in your life. Jesus gives integration to everything else in our lives. And until we get that, it will never have the power that it's supposed to have. Now, I need to close this up. I'm not, bi- I'm not big on like a practical, I'm not a practical application guy, I'm sorry. Um, this is one, again, this is one of the problems with being a philosophy professor. Uh, but I do want to give you just two things, okay? I-, I-, I want you to leave here today at least thinking through two application points, okay? Just two, it'll be quick. So what do we do? The first application is simply this. Um, we can pray. We can pray. Paul recognized in Ephesians, he recognized these things don't come naturally to us. Wisdom, discernment, knowledge. These things don't come naturally. We need to pray. God, give me wisdom. God, give me discernment. We need to pray for these things and pray for them diligently. Number two, number two is this. We can commit to a discipleship of the mind. Read. Read Scripture. Fill yourself up with the language of Scripture, and that language will start seeping out of your life. Read. Read a good book. Read a book that will challenge and stretch and develop your faith. I mean, we read all sorts of nonsense every day, all day long, right? We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on the internet. I mean, we're reading all this stuff all day long. All I'm saying is carve out some time in your life to develop and cultivate the discipleship of the mind. Read a good book, something that is going to help you grow to think Christianly. Join a small group. Join a Sunday school class. 
join a group of individuals who will again cultivate this life of the mind. Commit yourself to the discipleship of the mind. If it's true that beliefs have consequences, and they do, let us commit today to this task, this ongoing task of taking every thought captive. Let me pray for us. God, we, uh, we love you, and I thank you for this church. I pray that you would bless it. I also pray that you would um, fill each one of us with a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of discernment that leads to a knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.